uh, we kind of look at the Bible now, which is God's Word. We're looking at Exodus 35, uh, the last uh, few chapters of Exodus, 35, 4 to 10. I'm going to read that right now. It says this, Moses said to all the congregation, the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let them bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, uh, uh, tanned ram skin and goat skin, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and, and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all the Lord has commanded. Well, good afternoon and welcome. Uh, I'm Jeremy. I'm one of the leaders here. And uh, I get to bring to you the very last uh, sermon and section that we're looking at in the book of Exodus. So we've traveled 14 weeks through this 40-chapter book, the second book in the Bible. And, um, and I hope... I get the sense it has been for you, as it has for me, full of surprises. That um, many of the books, particularly because they're steeped in an ancient Near Eastern culture, you feel like they're going to be pretty inaccessible. And yet, as we dig into it and see that we are worshipping the very same God, it seems like the distance is not three and a half thousand years long. And so um, I look forward to finishing this up today and, and from hearing a bit from you guys and your MC leaders as to what work God has been doing in your hearts. And also, yeah, look forward to next week. We've never done this before. So at the very least, it's novel. And everyone loves novelty. So <laughs> I think it will be more profound than that. We've got uh, some deep reasons for doing this. But let's get into Exodus 35, where we're going to see at the very end of the book, as all the things come together, as we see the climax and the pinnacle of the book, that God's people finally are set free to serve. Years ago, I used to teach PE. If you know me, you'll know that's the case. And um, the, if you, I mean, you might think that you know what awkward is, but you don't know what awkward is until you're a 22-year-old male teacher teaching sex ed at an all-girls school as your first gig. That is 11 out of 10 awkward. But the, the unit actually, this might surprise you, the unit that I least enjoyed teaching was not that one, but there was another one in there Called, I don't even know if it's still in there, but it was called self-concept. And it was one of those resilience units that had gone in there because now teachers have to do all the stuff that parents used to do or something like that. And it was just a unit that was in there and it was just, it was called self-concept and just, it was all just self-talk. So it was self-worth, self-respect, self-care, self-love, just self-yourself. It was just so much selfness. And the, the thing about it was the students knew that it was a very thin unit, that if you were a, a, a thinking, reasoning teenager, and you just had the kind of the self-respect to ask the question, why, you could, you could push straight through it. Like if you were to just say, all right, we're to respect ourselves, why, there was just, there was no foundation beneath it. And I really didn't enjoy teaching it for that reason. But it's interesting, it represents a worldview that's everywhere. The, the kind of more technical term for it is radical self-expression. The idea that happiness will be found as I express my unique identity. That's how I'll find myself and I'll find meaning and significance in life. And it's a worldview that's absolutely everywhere. And yet it's not a worldview that you would call thick. It doesn't have a lot to it. There's a song written a number of years ago. I think 2012 was a year. Uh, there was a Fleet Foxes song. And the, the opening lines go like this, and it represents, I think, two contrasting worldviews. 
It starts by saying, I was raised up believing I was somehow unique, like a snowflake distinct among snowflakes, unique in its way you can see. So if you know the song, you're already hearing the melody, right? But then it says, and now after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. And these are the two worldviews. One is that happiness is found in digging deeper into myself and my unique self-expression. And on the other side, what the old world called calling. The sense that the way that meaning is found is I get to be a part of some great story that started long before I was born and will continue long after I've left this world. That meaning is found in getting caught up in something great that is far beyond me. And if you understand the story of the Bible and the section that we're in in Exodus, you'll see that that second worldview is what God's people, the people of Israel, are getting caught up in. That there is a story that started long before them, and as we can see in our timeline here, continues long after them, and they get the privilege of being caught up in it. And what we'll see is the joy of God's people to be caught up in His great story, and what a blessing it is to be caught up in the storm of His grace. And so I'm going to pray that as we dig into this very last section that we'll see that we are part of that story too. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are the great author, that you are the one who has written the story of history, and you will bring it to its glorious end in the climax as you bring all things under one head, even Jesus Christ, as you judge the living and the dead, as you restore the new creation, as you right all that is wrong in the world. And Father, we pray that we would see that you are calling us to be a part of this story, even as you were in the story of Exodus, and that to be a part of this is the greatest joy a person can know. And Father, we pray all this for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, the story so far is this. In the first 18 chapters of the book of Exodus, God saves his people. It's all summed up in Exodus 14.4 when he says, look, you don't have to do anything, just stand there and I will fight for you. And he does. He completely obliterates the greatest power in the world at the time, sends plague after plague, redeems his people out, and makes Pharaoh set this people free. But he can't keep to his word and he chases after them, so God miraculously brings his people through the Red Sea and closes the sea after them and obliterates Pharaoh's forces. Then he has this people all to himself and he brings them to a mountain and he says to them, you're going to be my holy people. Not because you did anything great, but just because I love you and I set my affection on you. You're going to be my treasured possession. Now, now do what I command. And they all say, we can't wait. Yes, God, we will do it. And so while Moses is up on the mountain getting instructions to build a tabernacle, which if you weren't here for that week just means fancy tent. And it's a dwelling place because God is saying to his people, build me this tabernacle because I'm going to dwell with you. So for the first time since all the way back at the beginning of the story, God is going to be with his people in a permanent way. He says, I will be with you wherever you go. And he says, build for me this tabernacle. And he says to them at this point, they're so close to doing that he even appoints a foreman over the job. Look at what it says in Exodus 31, 1-3. He says to them there, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Herf, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. 
So they're about to build this thing. God says, I'm even going to appoint someone to do it, and it's all about to happen when disaster strikes. Moses is up on the mountain getting these instructions from God when the people rebel. They build a golden cow, they set it up, and they say, worship this. This is the thing that saved us from Egypt, even though we just made it a few seconds ago. And God says to Moses, look, go down to the people. They've gone wrong. Go sort them out. And there's this tension point where it's like, is God really going to stay with this rebellious people? Right? They've just committed to being his people, and they go and cheat on him. It's like, it's like cheating on the honeymoon. He says it's that, that soon into the game that it happens. And the, the, the tension point is, is God going to leave them forever? And instead, he decides that he will stay with them. And so it's kind of like we'd hit pause on building this tabernacle. This whole drama unfolds. And now it resolves, and God says, I'm going to be with my people. And so now they're actually going to do it. They're going to build the tabernacle, and God is going to dwell with his people. And so to confirm that the story has kind of resumed from where it was before, we read almost exactly what we read in chapter 31, in chapter 35 that Gav just read from. Look what it says in Exodus 35, 30 to 33. It says, See, the Lord is called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. He has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for every skilled craft. See, God here says, this is the tabernacle that I want you to build. And there are five chapters of details on it. You can be thankful we're not going to go through all five all over again. But in that, he had laid out that this, this thing was going to represent Eden. It was going to remind them of going back to Eden. He says, you need to do this exactly as I say it. But he doesn't leave them alone to do it. He gives this guy, Bezalel, his spirit so that God will be with them in actually building it. Here, God is showing that he's not some distant foreman just giving commands, but he's going to help his people to make this happen. And just think for a moment how significant this is for people who've been in slavery for generations. Never has anyone ever treated them like this. God is saying to them, build these things and I will help you to build it. The way that they were treated previously was Pharaoh made them do work that he would never dirty himself to touch. They were forced into labor by people who would refuse to do the work that they even needed to do themselves. And here instead... God is getting right in amongst them and saying, look, even in this, I'll give you a guy and I'll give him my spirit that he might direct you to do this exactly as I say. God is being with his people. Not to make every illustration about teaching. I don't know why it's just a double up for today. But when I was teaching a prac, there were two types of prac teachers. There was the one who was like keen, committed, involved, still loved teaching, wanted to help you be there. And there was the, then there was the other type. The type who had retired several years ago but was still getting a paycheck and turning up each week. And when they got a prac student, instead of this being a time to train up the next generation of teachers, this was like basically two weeks paid leave. And then the first one I ever had was at a reasonably loose school as well. And he just fed me to the wolves and disappeared. I didn't even, most of the time when they asked where he was, I couldn't even tell, the te- like, I couldn't tell people where he was in the school grounds. He may not have even been on the school grounds. <laughs> he basically abandoned me for two weeks and just, and just legged it. Now, most people who've, who've done pracs at several schools will have at least one of their pracs will have one of these teachers in it. But it's, the, it's, not, it's not the pattern that the DV actually wants, and it's not the pattern of, of actually developing good teachers. 
The ones that are good ones are the ones who are there and amongst it and wanting to be there and a part of the teaching. This is what God is like with his people. He's saying, you're going to build me a tabernacle. I'm going to dwell with the people for the first time ever, and I'll be there helping you to do it. God is intimately involved in the work and guiding it. But in case you feel like he's kind of a, a micromanager or like a dad playing Lego with his kids who kind of is like, get out of the way, you, you, you know, you're ruining it all, just let me do it. We see that that's not what's happening. He uses the gifts and skills of his people as well. Look what it says in, in Exodus 35.10. Moses puts the call out to Israel and says, Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. So he says, anyone who's got some skills to contribute to this, come forward. And look what happens in 35, 25 to 29. It says, and every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and in fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. All the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light. And for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, all the men and the women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. So Moses puts the call out, and women and men come forward and say, we want to do it. And not only that, you see the language in there, it's in there again and again and again in chapter 35, their hearts stirred them to do this. It's not under compulsion. They're they're delighted to do it. They can't wait to do it. They come forward from every every corner of Israel to be a part of this great work. They're volunteering their time and their efforts and the very best of their skill to build this because they know that they're getting to be a part of God's great story. And God is inviting them to do it. Like on Father's Day just a few weeks ago, my kids were so excited to bring me the cards that they had made at school. Now, they'd drawn them on these sort of big bits of paper, and my head was about five times the size of the rest of my body, so I don't know what they're saying about me, but I didn't get a complex about it. It was fine. But those, the cards that they gave me, when they, when they passed them to me, my, my first thought wasn't like, oh, like, I wish you just got a Hallmark card with some decent like, design work on it or that sort of thing. Because it's more sincere that they would actually be a part of it, even if my head looks a bit munted. It's fine. The this, this sentiment there is that they actually wanted to do it, and they were so stoked to be able to do it. In the same way, God could have built the tabernacle any which way he pleased, but instead he wants his people to be a part of it. I mean, he could have done his own design. He could have said, step aside and just taken a nation state and built an enormous just pad, something that would have been on like MTV Cribs or something like that. But instead... He wants them to be a part of it, that they might be a part of the joy of bringing about the kingdom of God. And so they own it. He could have done something way more extravagant, but to to involve his people and to have them be a part of it is key to them being a people set free. He's teaching them what it's like to be his people. They're giving and they are serving in an incredible way. And it doesn't just stop there. When he asks his people for the resources... Look what happens in Exodus 35, 4-9. Moses says this, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is generous of heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair and tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for the setting, for the ephod and the breastpiece. 
So Moses puts the call out to the people and says, come and donate these precious items, these incredibly precious and rare items, and look what the people do. In 20 to 24, we read, And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets and all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ramskins or goatskins brought them. And everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use brought it. So they pour out stuff. They're bringing it forward. Now remember, this is a people who just not long ago were living in slavery. So they don't have a lot of their own stuff. In fact, most of the precious items that they have probably came from, if you remember in the Exodus story, when they were leaving, the Egyptians giving them this stuff on the way out, saying, look, please, just go. And so for the first time, they actually had some items of significance of their own. And the moment comes, and they give it up, and they can't wait. They just, they donate it all. They see what God has done for them in saving them out from under slavery, and it's an overwhelming, generous giving. And look how, look how generous it gets. In the next chapter, in Exodus 36, 2-6, we read, And Moses called Bezalel and Ohaliab, and every craftsman whose mind the Lord had put, uh, had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task he was doing, and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp, Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. So Moses says, look, bring your stuff. And they bring so much of it, and they keep bringing it and bringing it and bringing it every morning, it says, to the point where all the workers are like, all right, Moses, can you put out just a public service announcement to say, we don't need any more stuff. We've got more than enough to do what God has asked us to. And you have to stop the people from bringing. There's this overwhelming sense of generosity. They all, for the first time, are getting a right response to grace, to the grace and goodness that God has given them. It's overwhelming in generosity. And not only that, it's having this snowball effect where it's knocking on to all the other people. As one person gives generally, so another does. It reminds me of there was a time when we used to play, you know, and it's only people who are in like a full-time study context who have the time to do this, but who play hacky sack, if anyone ever plays it anymore. The idea, if you don't know what it is, don't bother yourself too much about it. You wouldn't lose a lot of sleep over it. But it's a small, like, beanbag that basically you're meant to kick it around in a circle till everyone's hit it, and that's a hack, right? So if you've got a circle of eight people, once all eight people have touched it, it's a hack. But one time we were playing this, and a friend of ours who, bless her heart, is just full of enthusiasm, but just very impulsive, burst in and said, what, what's a hack? And one of the guys, just quick as he like, said, actually, Mickey, it's when... Um, it's when everyone's having a good time at the same time. And so she was like, okay. And so we started playing, and she'd 
kind of like G yourself up and be like, are we all having a good time yet? And the, and the irony was, so I was just like, it was a genius moment. I don't know how he came up with it on the spot. But it, the funny thing was, as you started to do it, everyone did start to have a bit of a good time at the same time. It was actually like pretty fun. But it's funny, isn't it, that, like, that sometimes mood can be catching. And it's certainly the case with grace and generosity that has this snowball effect. As one person is transformed by the grace of God, so it impacts another and another and another. And we're seeing that here. As one person gives generously, then another does. And they start out doing one another to the point where all the, all the workmen have to say, look, stop, we've, we've actually got too much. Do you think how radically different this was as an experience of work to slavery? It is literally the opposite. For 400 years, the people of Israel had to do work that they did not want to do and they were forced to do. And here, they're doing this willingly and voluntarily. God is teaching them that to live under him is the complete opposite of living under Pharaoh, under the tyranny of sin and cruelty and evil. And now under the good rule of God and under his grace, this is what it's like to live. They come forward with these free will offerings. They're transformed. And it's profound. And so finally, they are rightly responding to the grace that has been poured out on them. And it's leading to this generous, free-flowing love and service and giving. And so the result is that the work is finally completed and God dwells with his people. Look at the final words of the book of Exodus. Exodus 40, 33 to 38. So Moses finished the work. So it's done. After all the tension, after all the will it happen, won't it? It's finally happened and it's done. The work is finished. So then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night. In the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So the book finishes with a great reversal. God is with his people. And notice how this is reversed exactly what happened in chapter 32. Because what happened in 32? The people got together and they donated their gold and their precious things and they built a false idol to worship in the face of God. And here it's been completely reversed. Instead of throwing God's generosity back in his face, they've responded rightly and it's poured out in this generous effort to build this tabernacle that God has overseen, that God has been with them to build and it's finally finished and now God dwells with them. Where in 32 they came together to rebel against God and he removed his presence. Now they come together in obedience to God and he draws near and he leads them. Notice what it says that the tabernacle, when he was there, filled And not only that, this cloud or this smoke would rise up from it to say to them, you're going to go now. God is literally leading them through the desert with his people, leading them to the promised land. It's a profound ending. But I don't know if you noticed as well that it is in some ways still a bittersweet ending. See, even though God is with them, did you see what happened there? That it said Moses could not enter the tabernacle. So God has drawn nearer than he has since the beginning, since humankind rebelled against him. 
And yet he is still at a safe distance from his people. Even Moses, who is the leader of the people, the one who is closest to God, is not able to enter the tabernacle. God has drawn near, but he will draw nearer still. See, Israel worked and gave generously towards this one thing to see God dwell with his people. And yet, even at that point, he was still keeping a safe distance. But we know on this side of the cross that God is going to draw even nearer. Look what it says at the very end of the Bible. This is in the second last chapter of the entire story of Scripture in Revelation 21, 1-5. The Apostle John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. God will dwell with his people forever, face to face. No more safe distance. God will be there and will make all things new. All sin and wickedness will be dealt with. Only what is good will remain. And what has been broken will be redeemed. God will be with his people. G.K. Chesterton said this about his conversion. He said, the modern philosopher had told me again and again that I was in the right place, yet I had still felt depressed. When I heard that I was in the wrong place, my soul sang for joy like a bird in spring. I knew now why I could feel homesick at home. That was his experience. That when he finally knew that to know Jesus meant to be set free from sin and death, and to know that the end of the story is that God will bring all things together and restore his creation, was why he could feel homesick at home. Why this world at times can feel like a place that is so full of goodness and at other times so despairing that we can't wait to be beyond it. We know that the great story that we're caught up in is that God is bringing all things together. That he will restore all things. That we are homesick now, but there is a time when we won't be. And until that day, there is a work that God has given his church. Just as God gave his people a work to do before he would dwell with them, so Jesus gives his church this work to do at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. In the famous words at the end of Matthew 28, we read, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Just as he was in the book of Exodus... God is with his people to complete his work. Jesus says, I'll be with you to the end of the age. This mission is far beyond you, but I'll be with you to make it happen. He's not some distant Pharaoh making commands that he is unwilling and, and work that he is unwilling to do himself. He says, I'll bring this about with you. Go and make disciples of all nations and I'll be with you to the end of the age. And this is the story that we're caught up in. This is the story that we're privileged to actually be a part of. But if you're a follower of Jesus here today, you'll be directly a part of the new creation that he brings together, of people coming together from every tribe, nation, and tongue. It's a story that we are called to be a part of. You think of it like this. Years ago, when Australia for the first time qualified for the World Cup, 
it was it was a moment that was that you know one of those rare sort of sporting moments that brings a nation together and I had the opportunity to go to the game and I didn't want to go because we've been let down so many times like losing to like you know Iraq and whatever like what I was just like oh, I'm done with this right so I thought I'm gonna stay at home at a safe distance from the disappointment but uh, as the game went on, it looked like this was actually going to come together. And if you know the story, like it comes down to the penalty shootouts, to Aloisi's final kick where he buries it, and then it's just euphoria. And I remember thinking at that moment, one, that I wished I was at the game. And then I thought, one of the guys who, who was a friend of ours who had known since uni, was actually, he was in the squad, but he was on the bench. I thought, imagine how good it would even be to be on the bench at that point. But then I thought, even for him... I mean, he would just be, he's that close to it. He would have been longing to actually be in the game on the field. And even for the players who are on the field, I mean, you would love to be Aloisi, the one who actually buries it in the net to secure our spot in the World Cup. The truth is, when there's a great story going on, you want to be as close to the action as possible, right? You don't want to be a spectator. You want to be as close to the center of it as you can. We're a part of a story, and God is calling us to be right in the center of the action. That on the last day, he's going to gather his people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and they'll be with him in joy forever in the new creation. And you, if you're a follower of Jesus, are called to be a part of it. You're called to take the gospel to the nations. I mean, we have a huge opportunity in just over a month. We run Introducing Jesus here, which is a chance to get together in here to have a space where, which is pretty rare in our city, to have actual time set apart to think about deep questions and to think about Jesus' answer to them. And there are people in your life who you know who have massive questions about life and meaning and death and purpose and all these things, and Jesus has answers. And so I'd encourage you to be a part of it. If God is putting on your heart someone that you are praying for, who you would love to hear the hope and joy of the gospel, be praying for them and to step out and to ask them, to get into the game, to help out in other ways. El, as Gav mentioned before, is going to be putting on a great spread of food because food is a, is a great context to have great conversation, isn't it? Everyone knows what to do around food. You just you eat it and you talk. It's very simple. But if you can help out with that, we'd love to hear from you as well. If you can help out in other ways, look, God uses the gifts of his people to bring about his purposes and his kingdom. Just like he did for Israel, so he does through his church now. And we need each other in this. Because the truth is there is a day coming when every soul will stand before the living God and give an account. And Jesus is the only hope. To finish up, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, all your life, and he's speaking to someone weighing up Christianity and the truth of Jesus. He says, all your life, an unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond your grasp of consciousness. The day is coming when you awake to find beyond all hope that you have attained it or else that it was within your reach and you have lost it forever. And we pray that God would call many sons and daughters home in his great story. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are bringing all things together, all history together under Jesus. And we praise you that we get to be a part of it. And Father, we pray that you would be with us by your Holy Spirit to help us, to embolden us, to strengthen us, that we might hold out the message of life and see many come to rejoice in it, to put their faith in Jesus, to have their sins washed away, to be made new, to be forgiven, to be restored, to be adopted in. Oh, Father, we pray this for the glory of your name. Amen.